these are real issues. Today is to sound the alarm. The trembling is happening all the time. Puerto Rico sits between two fault lines. The central government does not have the capacity to be able to deal with this type of situation. It was the governor that admitted there is no emergency plan for earthquakes. This is where stateside, we have to exercise our social capital, our political capital, and our conscience. This is a humanitarian crisis and we will not allow it to happen again. Hi everyone. That was Cristina Pasiones-Zayas, co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda in Chicago at a press conference announcing the reactivation of the Chicago Puerto Rican Agenda's 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief. I am switching up the intro for this week's episode because I want to share what Puerto Ricans in the diaspora here in Chicago are doing for earthquake relief. Since December 28, 2019, close to 1,300 earthquakes have hit Puerto Rico with the largest being a 6.4 magnitude quake. In response, Chicago's Puerto Rican agenda has reactivated their 3Rs campaign to rescue, bring relief, and rebuild the hardest hit parts of La Isla. Learn more about and or donate what you can to the 3Rs campaign at PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. I'll include the link in the show notes along with a link to the latest piece I wrote for Latino Rebels about the campaign. You can also stay up to date with the PR Agenda's earthquake relief efforts on their Facebook page. Now, on with the show. Bienvenido. Ahora está escuchando el Paseo Podcast, donde descartamos las historias de, por y para la comunidad puertorriqueña. Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smizer de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. On this week's episode, I am joined by Cristina Pasiones-Zayas, Associate Vice President of Policy at the Erickson Institute and co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda here in Chicago. We're going to talk about her work in early childhood education and with the PR Agenda. But first, there's been a lot of news coming out of Puerto Rico. We can't adequately do that coverage justice in this week's episode, but we will make it a point to do that in the future. I will say this though, there's a few rapid fire news stories I wanna share with you. Hopefully this inspires you to do some research of your own, understand the context, and contribute to the conversation in future episodes of the Paseo podcast. But for now, just keep these few things in mind. Recently, this week, a bunch of people in Ponce broke into this warehouse and found a humongous amount of supplies that were meant to be distributed for Hurricane Maria relief. This is a tweet from David Bernard. He says that Puerto Rico's governor's former chief of staff says the governor knew about warehouses of disaster aid on the island. The governor has not denied knowing about the warehouses. 
She's just blamed the former emergency management director for not distributing the aid. So Governor Wanda Vasquez has fired people. She's had a 48-hour investigation. Recently, the governor mentioned that she knew about the warehouses of disaster aid. She blamed others for not distributing the aid. I just, I just don't understand why, as a governor, if you know about these warehouses and you know the severity of Hurricane Maria and the damage it caused and the pain it brought people's lives, if you know that there's warehouses out there that have supplies in them, why wouldn't you distribute that? Why wouldn't you make it a point to distribute that? Or do you not care? So at worst, it's going to be something along the lines of you know malicious intent, or at minimal, it's going to be a situation where it's just negligence. So who's really leading the island here? Because there's a lot of stuff going on, and we need strong leadership. And that doesn't seem to be the case right now as this story is developing. So in addition to that, there's a number of people in Puerto Rico that are going to San Juan to protest at the governor's mansion. Residente has made a, a couple videos encouraging people to protest the governor that they want her to resign. Currently, uh, last I checked, there's about a thousand people gathered there. And we got some heavy hitters too, some idols in the Puerto Rican community. Last time when we had a protest to demand that the last governor resign, we had Bad Bunny out there, we had Ricky Martin, we had Residente out there. Some videos I'm seeing now not only have Residente there, they have a few MLB players, including Chicago's very own Javi Baez. There's a lot of attention that has been spotlighted in Puerto Rico. We're keeping our eyes on it. It's a lot. So that was just a rapid fire amount of news. Again, we'll we'll try to get some experts on in the future so we can take a deeper dive into each of these stories. But we're going to jump into the interview with Cristina. Again, this was recorded before the earthquake started hitting Puerto Rico. She's worked in early childhood education and has been a leader in the Puerto Rican community. So I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation. We have a very special guest here with us in the Puerto Rican Cultural Center studios. I have Cristina Pasiones Zayas, the Associate Vice President of Policy at the Erickson Institute, as well as co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda right here in the city of Chicago. Christina, why don't you introduce yourself to our guests? What should we know about you? Thank you, first of all, for having me. Super excited to have this conversation. I would say, first and foremost, I am a homegrown Chicago kid. I grew up in Logan Square, have a lot of roots in Humboldt Park, and this is Logan Square before it is the Logan Square of 2020, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about Logan Square in the 80s. Mm. Um, I grew up in the Boys and Girls Club in Logan Square. My parents actually met there and, um, you know, were community organizers. So very much so the community is a part of my whole childhood imagination and my identification. And um, graduate of Chicago Public Schools, worked in uh, Little Village for several years, as well as at Clemente. Um, so a lot of my uh, professional experience is very much rooted in education, community, and pretty much the Latinx community. Been doing the work <laughs> big time here in the city of Chicago. We've mentioned this in previous episodes of the podcast briefly, but Logan Square, you mentioned, not the Logan Square today, but the one back in the 80s mm -hmm. when we had, pro it was like the height of our Puerto Rican population, not only yeah. there, but in Humboldt Park. Yep. A lot of people forget that Wicker Park, Humboldt Park, Logan Square, shoot, even Lincoln Park were all just hubs of Puerto Rican culture and Puerto Rican people and community. And that's all 
changed. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's actually, if you think about it, there, there was a segment of our city called Puerto Rican Chicago. And that was the um, sort of trifecta of Logan Square, Humboldt Park, and um, Wicker Park. And, you know, now there's just a very different presence and outpicturing of of the community. But very much so growing up, I think, in Logan Square and traversing between Logan Square and Humboldt Park, you know, you really had a very strong Puerto Rican presence and identity. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that um, has been enshrined in this wonderful Paseo Boricua and our larger vision for Puerto Rico town. Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing that I've seen in any other Puerto Rican community in the diaspora looks, feels is structured in the way that we have Paseo Boricua. And the Puerto Rican agenda plays a big part in that. We're definitely going to get into that later in the interview. But I want to switch gears and talk about Erickson Institute. Uh For those listening, what is the mission of the Erickson Institute? Well, I can tell you the mission sort of through its origin story. Mm -hmm. We were born out of the civil rights movement, um, specifically when the Head Start legislation passed in 1965. Uh, three amazing women and uh, an investor came together to say, okay, we've got this legislation that is really trying to set up our youngest children for success in life and in school, yet what are we doing to be deliberate about how we prepare a workforce to work with young children and their families? And so hence the Erickson Institute was born. And the three women, I think, are really important to acknowledge. Barbara Bowman um, was one of our founders. Her listeners may identify her through her daughter, Valerie Jarrett, who was senior advisor to President Obama, and Maria Pierce and Lorraine Walsh. And all three of them had very unique kind of lenses into the work. Barbara being a policy expert as well as an educator, an advocate, Maria Pierce being a social worker and Lorraine Walsh being a psychologist. And then you had Irving Harris, who was the investor, um, who was a businessman and really understood that to seed our society and set it up for its greatest success, we have to start very early in the support and development of young children. And um, he founded Erickson as well as the Ounce of Prevention Fund, Family Focus, Um, He was, you know, instrumental in advancing the uh, work of child development in Illinois and really putting Illinois on the map. Mm. So our, you know, organization is focused, our primary identity is we're a graduate school focused on uh, child development. We grant master's degrees and um, doctorates as well as continuing education. We have a direct service arm. So we have a center for children and families that provides behavior and mental health services and interventions for children zero to five. Um, We have two full service clinics that do that. One in River North where our main campus is and another one that we just opened up a few months ago in Little Village. And we have a micro site right here in Humble Park at the Centro Infantil. Oh, wow. For for our listeners, Centro Infantil, where is that? Is that on Paseo Boricua? No, it's on Rockwell. Rockwell, it's, okay. Uh, I think it's 1346. 1346. Right, it's right across from the old Von Steuben, uh, Von Humboldt mm-hmm. um, Elementary School. Oh, yes. I used, I grew up around there. Yes. Oh, my gosh. It used to be Come a on. former child parent center. And yes. then the um, Centro Infantil from the Puerto Rican Cultural Center moved there, and they've tripled their capacity. Wow. And then we were able to bring resources from Erickson 
mission to provide these mental and behavioral health services for children zero to five in the community. So there's that's our direct service arm at Erickson, and then we also have um, a policy and leadership um, arm that I lead up, in which we have an early childhood leadership academy, we have a community data lab, and I work really closely with faculty to help them translate their expertise into policy. So those kind of um, three bubbles of like academic programs, um, direct service or clinical services, and um, policy and leadership make up the work of Erickson that you know really is trying to set our youngest children up for optimal well-being socially, emotionally, cognitively, physically, um, and, and really doing that type of work at a systems level to ensure that all children have the greatest start at life. So tell us a little bit why, why did you choose Erickson Institute out of all of the other organizations doing good work here in the city of Chicago? Was it a passion for policy, a passion for early childhood education, a mix of both, something else? I mean, what was, what brought you, what brought you to the door? Yeah, so I would say that the, the, the quest on early childhood actually started right here on Paseo Boricua. I was working at Roberto Clemente Community Academy. I um, had a few years earlier finished my doctorate in educational policy. I had been working in Little Village on violence prevention as well as community schools, you know, transforming our neighborhood schools to be these hubs of community um, engagement and education. I had an opportunity to move to Clemente to really um, support an initiative called Culture of Calm. And that idea was to transform our high schools to really be supportive of young people in a very holistic way. And while I was there, some of the initiatives that we were undertaking were really about helping our faculty and educators understand that young people who are coming from our community more than likely have experienced some type of trauma. Um, we have a lot of you know, wonderful things happening in our community, but we also have a lot of challenges that have root causes in our colonialism, in our economic exploitation, in racism. And so young people were you know, coming with a lot that they were carrying on them. And we had this amazing um, partnership with Lori Children's Hospital, where we were doing a, um, workshop for our teachers on brain science. And that's when I had heard for the first time that 90% of your brain is developed in the first five years of life. And what happens in those early years is so crucial for your life trajectory. And at the time I was like, pregnant with my first child and I was like holy cow and you know I had been working 16 <laughs> yeah. hour days doing this amazing transformative work in the high school with young people um, and it just dawned on me like I'm on the wrong side of the continuum I need mm -hmm. to be starting early mm -hmm. you know all this intense intervention becomes unnecessary when you start f very early um, setting young children up for success and supporting their families in their development. I was recruited out of Clemente to work for the Latino Policy Forum and specifically to build out their education department and their education department's focus was early childhood. So that was my formal entry into early childhood and really understanding um, the science behind it, why it's so important, the investment, the return on investment, but particularly for the Latinx population, how we have a unique opportunity to leverage our you know, dual language and our um, dual culture 
And so I um, got involved in policy work there, putting, you know, formally putting my doctorate to work. And then I was recruited to Erickson. So, I mean, it's it's all kind of happened serendipitously. I didn't plan that out. Um, but, you know, why not go to the epicenter of child development and be able to work with greats like Barbara Bowman? She's still alive. She's 92. She comes to Whoa. she comes to work every deal. day. She she teaches. She's still running the show over there. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's that's wild. 92 and still doing the work. Mm-hmm. I hope I make it that far. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, Christina. So Erickson's focus on early childhood development, that I'm sure when most people think that, and maybe this is an assumption on my part, but I think when most people think about early childhood development, they're thinking like preschool, daycare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it goes beyond like, I think it goes beyond that, would you say? Even goes beyond the classroom and lesson planning, like looking at that, especially those first five years, you said, mm-hmm. right, 90% of the brain develops. Yep. She's like, man, I wish I could go back in time and see what my parents <laughs> did in those five years, you know. They did a good job. They did right. a good job, I think. But, you know, like, I, if only we knew what we know now about how sure. a child develops. What are some things that maybe aren't common knowledge for people that we should be aware of in terms of um, a child's early development? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's really about early experiences. Mm-hmm. And you're right in that most people think early childhood education and they think preschool. Um, But really you have to even think, go further than birth prenatal. You know, when when the child is in utero and the nourishment and the type of experience that the mom and healthcare that the mom is getting, all of that is contributing to what that child is going to be born with, Mm -hmm. right? And so when we think about early experiences, we think about early care and education, which is, you know, everything from your child care and your infant and toddler services and your preschool, but it's also the health piece. So healthy beginnings, the nourishment, the um, well-being visits with a doctor, and also your basic needs, you know, the type of um, housing you live in and the environment around you and the stability of your family and the... Um, emotional kind of um, inputs that you're getting, as well as the relationships. Because, I mean, the the two main things that drive child development are relationships and environment. And in early childhood, we talk a lot about, and particularly at Erickson, relationships matter. Um, In the same way, you know, like with real estate, location, location, it's early childhood, it's relationships, 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 because a child is experiencing um, their external world through relationships, Mm -hmm. through their primary caregiver or that mom or that dad. Um, And, you know, we talk a lot at Erickson, we use um, Yuri Bronfenbrenner, he was a psychologist uh, that came up with this concept of this ecology of systems, meaning that... You know, a child isn't just going through the world as an independent widget. The child is developing in the context of the relationship with the primary caregiver or the parent. That parent is then situated in a family with that child. That family is situated in a neighborhood, in a community, in a city, in a state, in a country. All of those influences um begin to determine the choices and the circumstances that are presented to that child and and how that child is, you know, taking that information in, absorbing it is through those relationships. And so that's why the relationships are so 
key in early childhood? Just a quick follow-up question on that. When thinking of this philosophical question of a person, how the how a person develops, this question is it nature or is it nurture or mm-hmm. is it a combination of the two? Mm-hmm. Would you say it's nurture more than anything, or is it a combination of nature and nurture? Well, there's disposition, what yeah. you're kind of born with, and mm-hmm. then there's external influences. And you know, over the years, the science has been developed or has been quote unquote discovered. I mean, the past 20 years has been huge in mm-hmm. terms of what we've learned with brain science. And sometimes you're predisposed to certain things, but in um, but it kind of your environment can kind of serve as a light switch of either turning on those particular things or turning them off. Um, so just because you might be predisposed to it doesn't necessarily mean that's your destiny per se. Um, but there is an environmental influence. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, our areas of focus at Erickson is trauma and childhood trauma. And we talk a lot about, you know, the presence of toxic stress. And toxic stress is really um, trauma, chronic trauma that is presented um, in a child's experience or even an adult's experience, you know, through the form of abuse or neglect or community violence or, you know, drug use, all all of the kind of things that we know are going to present some challenges. And it literally gets under the skin of a child and particularly in the first five years of life when you're so impressionable it will literally reshape the architecture of your brain Mm -hmm. and so and it's not to say that it's all doom and gloom just because you experience trauma as a child but that going back to that relationship that is so key because that serves as a protective factor Mm -hmm. and we always talk about every child needs at least one adult that is just madly crazy over them. Mm-hmm. That does such an amazing thing for that child. So you can be in an environment that is challenging and that is presenting you with a lot of toxic stress, but if you have some protective factors around you through relationships, through nutrition and all the various other positive input inputs, that can then kind of serve as a buffer, so mm-hmm. to speak, and outweigh the negative inputs. Yeah, PTSD is a real thing. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know we know it's a real thing, but I don't I don't know that we have expanded our view on what can bring that type of traumatic stress, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when we think about a kid's early development, one to five. If they're living in a community that is riddled by gun violence, like that's going to have a substantial effect, whether they're two years old or five years old. It's maybe a different type of effect, but that's going to become a part of them. And they're going to grow up in that environment. That stress that they're experiencing, that adrenaline, you Mm -hmm. know, or they're attuned. The other thing to think about, young children are super attuned to the emotional state of adults around Mm -hmm. them. So if adults are feeling anxious, if they are stressed out, if they're upset, they then pick up on that and in some ways I mean there's some studies that show as early as 15 months they start to change their behavior based on how that adult is responding to the stress in the environment it's I mean it's so amazing when you really just when you're able to understand the complexity of what's Mm -hmm. happening and how that really just then sets the course and foundation for how you build yeah. relationships, your self-confidence, your ability to communicate, mm-hmm. feel that your needs will be met, all of that contributes. And that's why the early experiences matter so much. I was watching a 
talk you gave for this PBS special. It was their version of TED Talks. PBS has firsthand talks. You were on it, was that November mm-hmm. or fall? Yep, November it aired. So, so I'm watching this, I'm watching you give this talk and it was very good for our listeners. If you haven't watched it, go watch Christina. In your talk, you were talking about uh, Chicago 77 community areas mm-hmm. and you pulled up this map and you had, I want to say, 33 different neighborhoods, 37 mm-hmm. different neighborhoods highlighted. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong on the statistic, but it was those highlighted areas were showing that they had an average. It was like an average murder rate or like average. Was it the median. It was above median homicides for the 2018. Above. So the, and the median for each of those community, those 37 community areas was on average three. The median for the city was for the three. city. Got it. So the all the all thirty seven. All those met, thirty-seven had above three exceeded homicides. Exceeded that. Yes. Wild. Yeah. I mean, that's that's more than half. Oh yeah. One way to really look at it is that you have in total in our city hundred and seventy six thousand children ages zero to five. Mm-hmm. And what we did is we plotted not only where those homicides took place by community area, but where do young children live? Mm-hmm zero to five. And what we found in those 37 community areas, nearly 60% of children zero to five in our city live in those areas. So 105,000 children are living in community areas with above median homicides. Mm. And that represented to us areas of high concentrations of toxic stress. Mm -hmm. And so what are we going to do as a city to mitigate that? The point is that the majority of children zero to five, and the headline is yes. And I think we, I just heard yesterday that 2019, it was under 500 homicides. Mm -hmm. It was like 400 and some. Um, But the homicides are still happening. Homicides are still happening. We're mm -hmm. losing population as Mm -hmm. a city, yet the number of children exposed is high. Mm. And so we have to then begin to think about what are we doing to invest at a community level around mental health and behavioral health? How are we preparing our schools to be able to support children who are exposed to high concentrations of toxic stress? And those are just, in my opinion, kind of like intermediary interventions because I'm also thinking about root causes of why do we have community violence, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that goes back to economic exploitation and systemic racism. So how are we tackling those issues? Mm -hmm. Because I don't wanna just, you know, inundate our city with mental and behavioral health services and say, oh, we've solved the job. No, we need to get to a point where we're not having that type of outcome, which is a symptom of a larger issue. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, 
Give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. I don't, I don't think we often think about the root causes of things. Mm-hmm. Even like going to school, you yeah. know, like, oh, you're going to school to become a doctor. You're learning how to prescribe um, prescribe certain types of medications to people so that they're not feeling the pain they're feeling. Right. Sometimes the side effects are worse than the, the symptom that uh, the doctor's trying to treat. And it's like, okay, maybe someone's dealing with uh, cancer or let's say someone's dealing with diabetes. Okay, well, we can fix you up. We'll give you some insulin, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. How but do we prevent what are, that? Exactly. Yeah. So maybe we need to look at how we're how the type of food we're consuming, yeah. you know? Well, and I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics just put something out about the role of racism being mm-hmm. a threat to child development mm. um, and how racism plays out in our systems and structures and limits yeah. conditions and, you know, the emotional taxing burden of racism on people of color. Yeah, and even stuff as simple as real estate. I mean, not simple as real estate, but things like redlining. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're putting all the same type of people in the same area, keeping all the affluency in one part of the city and all the poverty in another part of the Mm -hmm. city. Mm-hmm. And what what good is that going to produce for everybody? It's only one type of person that it's going to actually That's the system would work benefit. for. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of the importance of doing the work in the community, I want to shift gears a little bit to the Puerto Rican agenda. But before we we transition into that, is there any advice that you can give for professionals working in early childhood education or aspiring professionals that want to get into early childhood education? Are there any resources or literature or um, initiatives that people can get a, be a part of or learn more about, maybe to hone their own yeah. skills? Or, I mean, one really good one that, that helps to kind of um, just break down the science so mm-hmm. that you can become a little bit more knowledgeable. The Harvard Center for the Developing Child has a whole series of briefs as well as um, infographics and videos that kind of like explain the basic concepts of brain science and child development. So that's a really good starting point. And like right now in Illinois, we're we're going through some real interesting um, shifts in early childhood with our governor, um, Governor J.B. Pritzker being very, you know, before he was in public service, he was um, an investor. And for about a couple decades, he invested very heavily in the first three years of life through various programs and services. Um, so he has just appointed a commission to look at the funding of early childhood and how we can be more streamlined and more effective and more equitable. Um, That commission was just appointed last month and they will spend the next entire year doing a deep dive to really think about what will it take financially as well as structurally to make Illinois the best place to raise a child. Mm -hmm. So I would pay attention to what comes out of that commission 
um, so that you can kind of be on the latest and greatest about the system that supports early childhood. I would also, you know, recommend that you pay attention to what happens here in the city, in Chicago. You know, there there's a whole plan around universal preschool that is being rolled out. There's been some problems with it, nothing that we didn't expect. That's another, you know, piece, and I would recommend there's a really good... Um, uh, WBEZ did a great series um, uh, towards the end of, actually just a, a couple weeks ago, uh, looking at various aspects of early childhood and child development. It's a, a series that they're called, I think it's called Closing the Gap. It's from Reset, um, Jen White's new show. Okay. And so there's some real good um, interviews. And James Heckman, he's a Nobel economist. Um, from the University of Chicago, he was able to really quantify the investment, the return on investment. So I was on a show with him. He actually was right before my interview and I gave a little bit of a talk, but there's just really great aspects and elements that help you kind of unpack the early childhood space. So you mentioned Governor Pritzker looking into what type of legislation should be put in place in order to make Illinois a supporter of early childhood education. What do you feel needs to be done in order to make Illinois the leader mm -hmm. in how to support properly early childhood education? The big issue right now um, is our workforce. Without educators, site directors, mental health practitioners, social workers, therapists, we have no early childhood. And the reason why I bring this up is that we have a shortage with people wanting to work in this field. And we also have a equity issue and a disparity issue. The educators that work in early childhood, are nearly 50% of them are eligible for public assistance. That's how little we pay them. And that issue gets exacerbated because the majority of that workforce is women and women of color. So this is a social justice issue and it is a crisis because when we think about the level of significance and of their contribution to society by supporting our youngest children and their development, and we put them in a situation where we exploit their labor, um, nobody wins there. Mm -hmm. Nobody wins because it creates a huge turnover. Um, churn, families are not able to ensure that their children have safe and high quality care and education while they're working. So you have families not able to be in the workforce or pursue an education so that they can have you know greater economic stability. And, and we have a huge disjointing between our early childhood system and the K-12 system. Mm. It's like we forget, we think that schooling starts in kindergarten. And we forget that it actually starts at birth. And how can we be better aligned um, so that we have a, really a birth through college system um, that takes into consideration the developmental pieces? So workforce is huge. And, you know, I think we really need to do um, what is necessary to ensure that compensation is fair and adequate that we have a pipeline of educators and other early childhood professionals who reflect the children that mm -hmm. they are working with, um, and that we continue to you know, sort of evolve their development and support. 
And so that's one issue. The other piece I think that's like super crucial because this can then kind of support the workforce piece, we need family paid leave. Mm -hmm. We as a state do not provide that blanket. So employers can, you know, choose to do that, but they have to pay out of pocket for that, right? Mm -hmm. But families are not guaranteed paid leave when they welcome a child. And I would say beyond welcoming a child, I think it should be if you're taking care of elders, if you have a family member who is disabled, we have to support our families to be able to take care of their families. And so um, it's that paid family leave I think is gonna be crucial and will help to alleviate some of the issues that happen when we force families to go right back to work. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's significant bonding that needs to happen between the child and the primary caregiver, the mom or the dad. Um, we call it secure attachment. That's the foundation mm-hmm. for basically self-confidence and self-awareness and emotional regulation. Um, so there's, There's that piece. And then the other piece I would say that's really key is that Illinois prides itself in being what we call a mixed delivery system, meaning that in early childhood, we provide early care and education in a variety of settings. So home-based, you know, your licensed home providers, you know, like that neighbor that takes care of the kids and gets paid through the state, through the child care assistance program. Um, or family friend neighbor care that may not be as formal or regulated. We also have community-based early childhood programs like the one that the Puerto Rican Cultural Center runs. And then we have school-based that, you know, for example, in Chicago Public Schools, they have preschool. And what's happened is that we have created a situation of cannibalism where you have a workforce that may start off in a community-based setting and loves being there, but again, those wages Mm -hmm. push them out. They go to the school setting because they end up getting paid more because you have unions and you have um, other resources that schools can tap to get them at a salary commensurate with experience and more aligned with a K-12 educator. And we have, again, this constant revolving door. But the community-based settings are so key in our state because those settings end up being much more than early childhood services and programs. They provide a two-generation model or a multi-generation model for families. They may support adult education. They may support workforce development. They may help a family avoid being homeless or having housing instability or food insecurity. Um, They have often been sort of those trusted sources in the community. And um, I think we need to preserve that model in our state um, so that families have options and they're able to meet their needs. And so I think if we focus on workforce, if we focus on paid family leave, and if we focus on the mixed delivery and the other topic we were just talking, mental and behavioral health at an early age, I think we'll be definitely set on that course. But those are not all easy things. No, absolutely <laughs> not. They're all big, yeah. each and of themselves. Huge, huge things. I mean, we're talking about um, almost seismic, systemic changes, mm-hmm. alterations to how we look at entire workforces. Yes. Um, but I think that speaks to a change we're seeing in a lot of professions that really are geared towards a development of people 
how not just like early childhood development educators, but I mean, even teachers, even though they have the union and they're able to get to the where they need to be salary wise, when you look at what they make, it doesn't feel like it's fair at all no. compared to what other what other professions are making. So the weight, the weight and the clout we put on certain positions over others totally has to be looked at. Absolutely. Um, and really deconstructed. So, wow. Well, it'll be exciting to see if any of those, hopefully <laughs> all of them, get addressed in this next year as right. our, as a, the current governor's administration um, looks at making us a beacon of, of hope and a leader in the early childhood development field. Um, let's switch gears a little bit to the Puerto Rican agenda because I want to be uh, respectful of your time. Um, co-chair of the Puerto Rican agenda, why did you accept this role? Why is the Puerto Rican agenda important? I have been involved with the agenda um, at least for the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew about it, of course, um, through my dissertation focusing on Clemente and all of the amazing accomplishments that the agenda uh, did since the 90s. So I felt the responsibility to be active, to be engaged, and to bring to bear, you know, what I was learning in school and professionally, and to be of service. And so, um, you know, I started attending as a member, and then I was asked to co-chair the education committee, and then I was asked to chair the agenda. And I, I remember, I think it's, I was asked, I was pregnant with my second child, and I was going to be having him. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm accepting. Clean schedule, clear schedule. <laughs> I'm accepting, yeah. but I'm about to be gone for a couple months. Right, um, right. Don't think I just dipped out. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I just think it's it's my responsibility. It's an accountability mechanism for me. Mm -hmm. um, I have been afforded so much in terms of the mentorship that community leaders here have given me and have shared with me. And I feel like this is just a part of the pay it forward cycle. And mm -hmm you know, making sure that I um, am grounded and rooted. Yeah. So what's the Puerto Rican agenda up to now? I know the meeting for January, there's no meeting in January, mm -hmm. but from the last time y'all met to now, um, what should we know about? Because I know it's open to anybody to mm -hmm. come to, the, to those agenda meetings, but you know, what's the agenda up to? So we just got our 501c3. Congratulations. Um, super excited about that. That was a labor of love um, that, you know, we for years had been talking about, should we do it, should we not? But I think with what happened with Hurricane Maria and all the work that we did around that, it kind of like pushed us in that direction mm -hmm. of knowing that we're going to need to, you know, be a little bit more formal um, in our processes and our organizational structure. So... Because we just got that, we're, you know, kind of recalibrating and thinking about how do we organize ourselves, our committee structure, um, our processes, our vision, our pri identifying our priorities and our fundraising strategy, because we know that Maria is not going to be the last hurricane or, you know, climate natural disaster that we uh, our island will experience so right. we need to kind of think long term about a long-term funding mechanism so we need to think about like what is that gonna mean I, I just think we're gonna see a lot more and we're gonna need to be prepared and pendiente really mm -hmm. um, so we're kind of doing some housekeeping I think the other thing that we're really starting to gear up and you know two main priorities you're gonna see us working on is policy around Puerto Rico and specifically injecting um, what we feel is 
necessary for the island to be self-determined and self-actualized, it will come a lot out through the 2020 presidential campaign and really pressuring the candidates to have Puerto Rico in the, the discourse and have a position and to make sure that they are actually interfacing with Puerto Ricans as they're developing this and not just mm-hmm. symbolically putting these issues up there. So that'll be one. Um, and then another you know, big project that we're gonna be undertaking is the manifestation of Puerto Rico town, which is you know, um, looking at how can we uh, create a, or I guess enhance what Paseo Boricua is. Um, through some legislative channels um, by creating what they call a special heritage district that could then have a taxing body mechanism that is controlled by the community and is helping to inform various aspects of development, economic development, cultural um, affirmation. And so those two areas we're going to be looking really you know, deeply in terms of deploying our resources and, and supporting that. So something local and then something, of course, uh, and on the island and mm-hmm. diaspora oriented. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the work around Hurricane Maria. We had Jesse on, mm-hmm. uh, another co-chair of the Puerto Rican Agenda. Uh, she was on and she talked a little bit about the three R's campaign. Mm-hmm. And recently when I was on the Agenda website, I saw a four R's campaign. <laughs> Update on that. Yeah, so there's so, a there's a fourth R that's been added to the campaign. Yeah, what I mean it's it? it it was it, that came out of the whole you know situation with the ousting of the governor, mm-hmm. um, the former governor Rosselló. Um, it was uh, actually it was a gentleman that used to work here at the cultural center. Like during that whole process, he like just forwarded me our logo with the fourth R, renuncia. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's really about being vigilant. Um, in terms of you know what is happening with respect to the governance of Puerto Rico and all that happened last summer, um, and the amazing you know uprising of the people to really just say yeah ya, ya basta with all this corruption and senselessness and basically extension of colonialism. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, no that that just got that was sort of our you know homage to the to the work on the island with that. Fantastic. Fantastic. I was so interested. I was like, oh, when did this change? I have to find out. I have to find out. Um, so and, and while we're on the topic of work the Puerto Rican agenda is doing, is there any work that the agenda is doing in regards to early childhood education? So some of that has come out through um, what I had mentioned earlier with um, the partnership with Ericsson and mm-hmm. the Centro Infantil having this sort of like micro site where we have clinicians on site who are specifically providing kind of three levels of support. Um, one, that would be what we call tier one, so community awareness around mental well-being and mental um, mental health and behavioral health for young children. The second tier, tier two, really providing the support to the educators in the Centro Infantil about how to kind of pick up on developmental or mental challenges and be able to make the appropriate referrals for a diagnostic or, you know, being able to just refer in general if a child is um, experiencing some stress and trauma in the family. Um, And then the third, of course, is providing that intensive treatment, child parent psychotherapy or, um, you know, uh, 
a kind of they they have this wonderful training that they've been doing called Circle of Security mm. for parents, mm-hmm. and it's really to help parents understand how you um, kind of serve as that circle of security for your child mm-hmm. and how to read their cues and respond to their cues to help them organize their emotions and really feel stable and secure. Is that kind of like a, kind of like a peace circle or like restorative justice circle with like talking pieces? And like no, different I mean, it, okay. I could see how you can, it's really, I actually, I sat in yeah. on a series and mm-hmm. it was super helpful for me as a parent too, yeah. you know, just reinforcing, like I saw my kids doing certain things and I'm like, oh, that's why they're doing it. Yeah, okay. Um, but it, it's it's really, we wa- you watch a lot of videos and then there's like a, a workbook and you kind of process where you look at, you know, a child's behavior and you see them upset um, being triggered by something and what you can do as a parent to kind of help to settle them um, and help to kind of redirect them or what you may have to encounter yourself and confront as a parent about what makes you kind of go off when your kid is doing something or you see them and it makes you nervous and confronting your own childhood trauma really I mean yeah. it's it's a great it's a great training and I know that they've been um, piloting it here in Humble Park fascinating okay last question I have and I'm just adding this to the end but you you had mentioned uh, needing a Puerto Rico policy if you are running for president of the United States mm-hmm. now you don't have to say who your front runner is <laughs> uh, who you're supporting but is there any candidate in the race currently that you feel has a strong Puerto Rico policy? Or is yeah. at least attempting so to we, have that. I'll say this: the Puerto Rican agenda does not endorse candidates, mm-hmm. um, but but um, you know we do know that Senator Bernie Sanders he has a position, um, and he in fact introduced some legislation along with Senator Warren, mm-hmm. um, particularly around um, some of the kind of like chronic policy issues with Puerto Rico with respect to. Um, you know, how Medicaid is dispersed, how, you know, housing is like through HUD, um, as well as other federal programs. Um, and, and then, you know, some kind of steps to do what is absolutely needed. And that's the audit of this debt that mm-hmm. we really do not have any kind of evidence of its justification. We are taxing the people um, tremendously. We are pushing folks out of the island. Um, and yet we have no um, sort of understanding if this debt is true, if it's real, if it was done in a legal way. Right. Um, Who so, benefits from that debt? Exactly. Accruing that since the 70s. Exactly. So, I mean, so you, so those are kind of the areas that we're looking mm-hmm. um, at to see to what extent uh, candidates are being deliberate and explicit in addition to like, who are they shoring up to be their surrogates? Yeah. One thing I'll say on the presidential race in terms of Puerto Rico policy, another thing that I'm paying close attention to is who's donating mm-hmm. to certain candidates. If they have stake in Puerto Rico's debt, mm-hmm. I don't know that I even want to give that candidate a second look. Right, you right. Know? It's no, like of course. I, we, we had, I had um, some Puerto Rican students from Yale on. Yeah, that um, show was awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> they were, I mean, they were awesome. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about divestment. And in my research, I had found out that with Yale's endowment, their holdings, they hold close to a billion dollars mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico's debt. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking 70 plus billion in debt for the whole island. Right, but right. they have a 
close to a billion yeah, got a invested in that. Mm-hmm. So the working class people that are being affected the most by this and hurt the most by that crushing, crippling debt, and other people are just making bank off of it. Absolutely. And then, and then if they're funneling that into a presidential candidate, mm-hmm. that tells me a lot about your values. Absolutely. I, it, it just makes me feel a little... Yeah, you feel some type of way, you know. No, I mean, I I think that that's super important. You've got to always follow that money trail. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that, particularly in my role on on the state board and Mm -hmm. thinking about when we award contracts, like how can we ensure that the contracts are going to companies or organizations that do not have. Um, investments in private prisons Mm -hmm. or investments in um, practices that are harming the environment. You know, like really being thorough and doing your due diligence, and you're right, I think in candidates you've got to kind of look at all four corners and Mm -hmm. peel back the layers to make sure that you're not um, unintentionally supporting the systems and mechanisms that have brought Puerto Rico to the status it's in. Well, I know all 100 candidates that are running for the Democratic <laughs> nominee are all avid listeners of the Paseo podcast. <laughs> right. So y'all better have your Puerto Rico policy down yes. and it better be good because we're paying attention. Okay, Cristina, we're coming to the end of the show. How can people keep up with you? Mm-hmm. Um, you have any social media channels, website, either for yourself, Erickson Institute, the Puerto Rican Agenda. How can people keep up with all that? Yeah, so for Erickson, um, we have a presence on social media, on um, Twitter and on Facebook, um, as well as our website, erickson.edu. Actually, our department, Policy and Leadership, we created an app. And you can download it for free at Google Play or the um, Apple Store. And um, all you have to do is look up Erickson Policy. And it's the the greatest way to stay up on the work that we're doing in the policy and leadership department in all of our areas. Um, I'm on social, you know, Facebook as well as um, Twitter. Haven't quite. I I signed up for Insta. I'm (laughs) showing my decade now, right? But uh. <laughs> I'm just like, man, it's a lot to manage that. And then LinkedIn. Heck yeah, I hear you. We have a we have a Facebook and a Twitter for the podcast. We also have an Instagram, but just for the purpose of locking down the handle. Yeah. That's too much work. It it's is. like, I got to worry like, about filters. And exactly. Like, no, All no, that no, no. stuff. Yeah. yeah so mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and then with the Puerto Rican agenda, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter as well. And our website is PuertoRicanChicago.org. Um, but I think for the most like up to date information, it would probably be Facebook. Um, you can you know like us, follow us, and you'll get our updates there. Cristina Pasiones Ayas, thank you so much for thank being you. on the show. We loved having you on as a guest, and hopefully we'll have a round two soon. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Special thanks to Cristina Pasiones-Zayas for coming on the show. If you enjoyed our interview, let us know. If you have any questions for Cristina, I'll try and push them out to her, see if I can get some answers for you. Hopefully, we'll get the chance to welcome Cristina back to the Paseo podcast soon. Cristina and the PR Agenda have been hard at work providing relief efforts to the hardest-hit areas of Puerto Rico after nearly 2,000 earthquakes have rocked La Isla. This episode was pre-recorded before the earthquakes took place, so I just want to share a quick update on the progress of the 3Rs campaign for earthquake relief in Puerto Rico. So far, according to the Agenda's social media channels, the campaign has worked with local Puerto Rican-driven initiatives to host 
a community kitchen in Ponce with Chef Ivoni and the organization Lea Conmigo. That is one of many community kitchens that are being planned. There are more planned for the future. Water, food, and art supplies were also delivered to Ponce for children's activities. Uh, so that's all been delivered. Uh, tents, tables, and tarps for an improvised medical clinic were delivered to Santa Elena in Guayanilla. In Panuelas, a solar gazebo, canopies, tarps, multi-game tables for kids and teens were delivered. And a donation was made to support the work of Dr. Iris Zavala Martinez and her team of 20 psychologists spread throughout the areas hit to provide psychological, first aid, and mental health interventions. Now, this is just a fraction of what has been done so far with the Three R's campaign. It's just a small piece. So if you want to learn more about what is going on with the Three R's campaign and the progress that's being made and how you can lend a hand, visit PuertoRicanChicago.org. Again, that's PuertoRicanChicago.org. Also, if you are in Chicago, there will be a fundraiser on February 2nd at the Wild Hair in Lincoln Park from 5 to 10 p.m. Live music, stand-up comedy, dancing, raffles, and the Super Bowl will be played if you rock with football like that. And tickets go for 20 bucks if you buy them in advance, $25 at the door, and 100% of proceeds go to relief efforts. Stop by and show your support if you can. If you can't make it out to the February 2nd fundraiser, come by the day before, Saturday, February 1st, to the February meeting of the Puerto Rican Agenda. That's going to be from 8.45 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. at Roberto Clemente Community Academy, right by Western and Division. And directly after that, the Puerto Rican Agenda will be having a fundraiser for the 3Rs campaign. So the Puerto Rican Agenda is going to go from meeting and talking about action items directly to actually taking action and helping raise money for the three R's campaign for Puerto Rico. There's going to be vendors, Puerto Rican films being shown, and musical performances. So if you can chip in a little bit, the people of Puerto Rico would really appreciate it. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.